Hello and welcome to Reactive's Yellow Room. I am Evi Chiori and this week we are talking about the milestone move by Ireland to give the green light to medical cannabis prescriptions, giving the right to patients to have access to medical cannabis and to be reimbursed for it. We are also talking about the call from the EU's data protection agencies to ban the use of artificial intelligence to identify people in public spaces, the legislative proposal and who owns your photos. So I have with me today a voice that you're probably familiar with because she's the 50% of the Agrovert podcast, the one and only Natasha Foot. Hello, thanks for having me. It's nice to be on, on another Your Active podcast. So Tash, today we'll talk about medical cannabis. Not really relevant to Agrofood, but still interesting. It seems like the EU is making some progress towards that path and Ireland is one of the countries that gave the green light to medical cannabis prescriptions. Why is this such an important move? There were actually some medical cannabis products that were already legal in Ireland. But the reason why this is an important, it's actually been called a milestone move um, by some, is because um, for the first time, medical cannabis will be available on prescription. And crucially, this will also be reimbursable. So previously to this, any kind of medical cannabis products have been quite prohibitively expensive for some people. And, um, you know, it's seen some families, you know, maybe... They're quite desperate to get treatment, maybe for their child that have conditions, things like epilepsy. Um, it's driven families to kind of turn to different markets within the EU and also um, even to the black market. So it can be very expensive. And for that reason, um, this move is being celebrated as a massive win for campaigners that have been campaigning for, for, for many years now for, for more accessibility to medical cannabis products. Um, but that being said, um, there are still some kind of criticisms of it um, because it is still accessible only in a very limited capacity. So um, a number of issues kind of remain um, on this. It's still being seen as a very kind of positive step forwards um, towards a greater accessibility in, in the future. Now, what's the procedure? Could everyone have access? And if so, how do they grant access? The prescriptions are limited to only a very small number of conditions still. So it's not kind of for anyone to go and access. And that's one of the main kind of sticking points, one of the main criticisms um, that basically it's not, for example, it's not recognized as a treatment for chronic pain whereas it is in many other member states, places like Netherlands, um, also some other neurological conditions, um, things where it, it, you know, there's, the evidence suggests that it could be a really helpful um, treatment. Um, these conditions are still, still not opened up for prescriptions. Um, it's only a very limited a, a handful, I think, of, of conditions. In terms of the procedure, um, another, another concern actually is that um, it still has to be signed off by a consultant. Whereas in other places um, like Germany, it doesn't have to go through kind of such, you know, high level doctors. And I was speaking to um, leftist MEP Luke Ming, uh, Ming Flanagan this week, um, and he criticized this as being, you know, quite cumbersome. He said it could lead to some unnecessary expense. Um, and so, yes, it's kind of restricted in, in that sense. Um, and it's also, although it is being prescribed, um, for these conditions I've spoken about, it's still seen as very much a last resort drug, a last resort treatment. So it's not put on equal footing with other treatments. Um, this is also something that um, Luke Flanagan criticised. You know, he was saying, well, if it's an effective treatment, you know, why not be one of the tools in the toolbox alongside others, you know, on an equal footing, rather than 
at the moment it's more that you have to kind of exhaust all the other options and then come to it as a as a last um resort so i think it's safe to say there's quite a long way to go before it's kind of truly freely accessible um um although it is a seen as a positive good first step as i said and there is a lot of controversy surrounding the matter for many reasons mostly because of prejudice but what are the most common concerns expressed by the authorities the medical staff there's a number of concerns generally concerning medical cannabis um kind of all communities especially like the medical community which have their own special um maybe concerns but also the wider public as well as mm-hmm. the government so i think in general there's a strong stigma attached to medical cannabis you know kind of this stems from historically um you know this idea that it's mixed up still now with recreational cannabis um and you know it's still really poorly understood i think by some people it's definitely under researched so although there's kind of a lot of indication that it has a lot of potential for treating some really debilitating conditions there are a lot of question marks around it um and then in the medical community i think there's still a lot of skepticism um around the use of it um and you know shaking off this stigma is is kind of a a long haul process you know it's something that doesn't happen overnight um as i said it has got these kind of historical ties and these uh, historical associations that um you know with research and with time and with evidence you know you're trying to break break those associations but yeah it's not a n- not a quick thing <laughs> And finally, what would be the future of the treatment in the EU and how does the EU compare to the rest of the world? That is something actually that that Luke Flanagan raised, you know, he was saying that the EU has a lot to learn from the US on this matter. Um, you know, he was saying that medicines far more accessible there, medical cannabis is far more accessible there, permitted for use for a far more extensive range of illnesses and he's, you know, he's saying that we really need to try and move towards that kind of kind of system and um, particularly for patients in kind of chronic pain looking towards the future getting my crystal ball out <laughs> i mean there is you know it's it is moving in the eu there are more and more programs and and more movement in this area if i mean it is slow you know slow progress i spoke to one of the lifelong campaigners parliament member uh, eugene or gino kenny um about this um and he was saying that there was actually a recent survey in ireland that showed that um 92% of people um were in favor of kind of more access for medical cannabis and he was saying you know this is absolutely unthinkable just a few years ago um and really shows kind of the the progress that's been made and you know in terms of getting the ball rolling on this um and he was predicting basically this will pave the way to open up you know much more so in the future in Ireland and and also um across the EU in the coming years but but as i said i mean you know it, it's still something that's got a lot of question marks it requires more research and he also really highlighted this need to make everything you know evidence based yeah in terms of the future there's there's optimism well let's hope the optimism will remain and thank you tash for joining me You're listening to Reactive's Yellow Room, and if you want to expand your knowledge on other EU policy fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. You can find them on your favorite podcasting app. And now moving to another familiar voice, this time from our digital hub, the voice of Luca Bertuzzi. 
will help me shed some light on what is happening with the use of artificial intelligence, the legal framework, and the call to ban all biometric recognition tools in public spaces. Hi, Evie. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for being with me today. So, Luca, the Commission proposed the first ever legal framework on artificial intelligence. So, what are the risks and what do we have to know about it? The Commission launched its proposal in April and it's now going through the legislative process, so through the Parliament and the Council. Uh, the approach they proposed is risk-based, uh, basically proposing to ban certain applications of AI, such as the Chinese-style uh, social scoring system. Um, and then there is a sort of pyramid of risks with higher risk application uh, that will have more uh, stringent um, requirements and obligations, uh, which then decrease as the risk uh, decreases. And when you're referring to the Chinese model, can you give us some more info on that? Because if you're not really involved into these things, you don't really know. And I have to admit, I am that person. <laughs> uh, well, it's really a black mirror style system, basically. Oh, no. Yeah, your access to social services and uh, the way the Chinese state deals uh, with its citizens is, is based on this system that creates a ranking, uh, in a sense. Uh, so according to your social status, you are given a certain score, and, and that defines uh, who you are, basically. And the Commission uh, made very clear this is not compatible with EU values, and it's going to be uh, forbidden, at least for public institutions. Uh, it does not exclude, though, uh, that uh, private companies might apply this. And, uh, and in fact, you know, uh, for instance, if you think about insurance uh, companies, they already do that uh, to, to assess the level of uh, risk uh, associated with their users. Uh, so, I mean, this is a bit of a question mark, uh, how, how private companies will be able to use this. And there is a huge discussion around Clearview AI, a company with a facial recognition database, and the fact that it owns pictures. Could you tell us a bit more on that? So Clearview is this uh, AI company that offers uh, facial recognition uh, services to law enforcement, but also to private companies. What they used to do, I'm not even sure they're still in business after the New York Times opened this uh, Pandora box, uh, is that they crawl the internet, they find images of, of people's faces, and then they create a database with uh, allegedly three four billion faces in there. So it's very likely that if you have a, a picture on the internet, uploaded on the internet, your face is also there. Wait, 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 wait. So our faces could be on their database. <laughs> it's very likely, but you know, there isn't even a way to, to know. And uh, the, the point here is really who owns uh, your face once you put it on the internet. In Europe, uh, with GDPR, the, the, the principle should be that you own uh, your personal data and what's more personal than one's own face. Uh, but uh, once it's on the internet, it can go, you know, it's, it's global. So certain uh, states do not uh, allow for these remedies. Mm -hmm. 
And this week, the EU data protection agencies called for a ban of using artificial intelligence to identify people in public spaces due to privacy risks. So what's the story with that and what does it mean in practice? This is uh, the other huge debate that started with the AI Act. Uh, in fact, the Act does not ban uh, the application of uh, biometric recognition tools in public spaces completely. Uh, it leaves out some exceptions. So, for instance, if a person is kidnapped, uh, law enforcement authorities can use uh, these facial recognition tools in public spaces to try to find that. The issue here is, of course, about abuses. Once you open these to certain applications, what tells you that uh, certain law enforcement authorities won't abuse that? And we know that in Europe we have uh, two infringement procedures for the respect of the rule of law against Poland and Hungary. So say hypothetically, if the Hungarian police started uh, using these to track uh, political opponents, uh, this would be a very serious risk. But the broader question here is what I was referring to before, uh, namely the fact that uh, according to GDPR and the, the overall uh, European data protection framework, you should have the right to uh, withdraw your consent uh, for, for uh, people to process your personal data. Now, if you have a live facial recognition tool, you cannot really withdraw your consent. And this, uh, you know, spurred the whole uh, uh, opposition by activists, by certain political group uh, like the Green or the Left that call this as a mass surveillance. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is a very big uh, debate and uh, we will see how this uh, will take shape uh, in the legislative process. Thank you, Luca, for this eye-opening conversation indeed. And our time is up for this week. I am Evi Chiori and this was your Active Yellow Room. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, visit youractive.com for the latest news and don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening and until next time.